From Filthy Luck Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I'm Jim Warner, and you are listening to Citizen Lit. In today's episode, we get a scene report with selected readings from busboys and poets in Washington, D.C. At this year's AWP conference, Cherry Tree and the Dr. T.J. Eckelberg Review teamed up for a night of readings at the legendary Busboys and Poets. The event also served as the launch party for both journals. From Washington, D.C., here is Cherry Tree's own James Allen Hall. all of you and to welcome you to uh, the launch reading for the, the newest issues of the Dr. T.J. Eckelberg Review uh, and Cherry Tree. Uh, I am your host, Cher. Uh, my, name is, my name is James Allen Hall. I teach at, um, at Washington College where we, make, um, where we make Cherry Tree. And I see editors in the audience. The, our fiction editor, Roy Kesey, is here. Uh, our senior reader, Emma. Emma's here, Emma Sovich. Uh, our managing editor, extraordinaire, Lindsay Lusby. I think that was a bigger round of applause than I got. Not that it's a contest. You're fired. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if you could please silence your cell phones, your pagers. Uh, not that anyone has pagers anymore. Um, and uh, Ray Bryant, the editor extraordinaire, uh, yeah, uh, will also make a little opening um, and uh, and then introduce the first reader. Welcome everyone. Thanks so much for coming out. I want to thank James and Lindsay. I'm from the heart. You know, Eckelberg heart. Big time, and all of you. Um, if you've done a reading with me in the last several months, there's a particular rule that I like to put out there right away, and it's very important, so please listen, this is serious. This is a no-groping zone. You may not grope yourself. You may not grope another. If you feel you cannot abide by those rules, go to the bathroom, and we don't need to hear about it, all right? <laughs> Unless you write a story, then send it to Eckelberg. Okay, good. Nate Brown's stories have appeared in the Iowa Review, Mississippi Review, Five Chapters, Carolina Quarterly, and elsewhere. He has received fellowships from the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, Vermont Studio Center, U-Cross Foundation, and Maryland State Arts Fellowship, 2016 in Fiction. He's the managing editor of American Short Fiction, and he teaches writing at Stevenson University and at George Washington University. But what his bio doesn't tell you is that he has a magnificent beard. When I first met Nate, he did not have his magnificent beard yet. But when he walked in tonight, that beard just shone on the face like auburn and sculpted. It's so thick. <laughs> and now I'm wondering if we could get Nate's magnificent beard 
and the dragon princess and slutty slugs together, we might be able to do really good things in the world. So I'm just putting it out there. Please write it. And all your groping. And send it to Aglebert. And Cherry Tree. The beard is the, the shame catcher. It catches all of this shameful shit I say. Um, thanks for thanks for being here. That's awesome. Um, I, the only, I'm going to read just a little snippet of a short story that I wrote recently. Um, there are only two things you need to know about the story. And the first one is that Roy Kesey, the writer and editor who is here, can be understood via the following mathematical equation, which is talent plus handsomeness divided by my self-consciousness plus Roy's handsomeness equals the orbital velocity of the planet, which is approximately 66,000 miles per hour. <laughs> we are rocketing around the sun quickly towards our own demise. Um, and the second thing you should know is that Ray Bryant, say no more, I love you. Um, this is a short story called Little Merit rides the elevator all the way to the top. It's um, about a mom talking about her son, Little Merit. Um, that's pretty straightforward. Perhaps we had given him too much. Perhaps in loving Little Merit and in celebrating his particularities, we had failed to see the umber flaw in his character. These days, I like to think that had I been perhaps less in love with him by just an ounce or a pinch or whatever measure it is that young mothers use to weigh and serve up affection for their firstborn children, that I could have saved him, that I could have saved us all. As time is wont to do, the years have made the truth simple. Roland and I had been naive, though if time is, as they say, a gentleman. We'd been no worse parents than any others. And by many measures, we'd been some deal better than most. Little Merritt was beloved, and because he was beloved, he was lavished with gifts from me, of course, and from his grandpapa, but also from his godparents, our friends, Roland's associates, and our peers. For years, my sole regret was that my own mother, Little Merritt's grandmama, Marvel Tech Avery, had not lived to lavish him with fineries from her own youth. And so we redoubled our efforts, Roland and I, swaddling our first and best born with soft wool sweaters during the winter, and later styling him in the manner of Roland and Roland's father before him, a sharp navy blazer with brass buttons, a miniature version of the jacket that Roland himself wore to the breakfast table. We'd even allowed the small luxuries that little Merritt's disposition demanded. How to tell with any infant what was, what was necessity and what was whim? Was it whim to change his nappies? Was it demand to feed him? Little Merritt had wailed during his first haircut, and I had promised him tears on my own face that I would never again take him to Bergdorf's so that he might be so restrained and butchered against his will. Instead, we had hired the finest coiffure in New York, we had been instructed to style his fine rosy hair using only marigold water in the summer and orange blossom water in the winter. And we were warned that we should only ever use a tortoiseshell comb so as not to irritate the soft, gelatinous dome of his pale scalp. 
Oh, there were signs of what was to come, but they were only clear to me after much reflection. The photo albums helped me to recall. Dr. Karn had insisted that at first I review our family albums, the great leather-bound volumes stamped with gold foil denoting each year from some great distance. He did not allow me even to cradle them in my lap, my beloved calf-skinned books. Dr. Karn placed the albums against the wall at the far end of his office, me sitting some 15 feet away, so that the particulars of our photographs, our home and its great hall and its velvet divans, its thick curtains and the heavy plaster molding might become somehow too distant for me to recognize as my own. Dr. Karn's thinking was not without reason, had I only been able to divorce the familiar from what was right there in front of me. Little Merritt, captured in one frame as a toddler, attempting to stomp one of our hairless kittens. Little Merritt, at the age of 10, struggling to bear his father's hunting rifle, desperately attempting to level the barrel at that loathsome photographer. Then Dr. Karn was sure that I have seen something in the pictures that I hadn't before, something that was clear as crystal to him. That the problem was not, as I'd once believed, one of having been too close to Little Merritt, one of, of being some smothering, doleful, lace-draped matron, dusted in powder and misted in perfume, and awash with motherly, motherly need, as my own mother-in-law had once been. No, Dr. Karn assured me that whatever was peculiar in Little Merritt, it had very little to do with my having held him to the breast for too long a time. Dr. Karn had said, looking at the pictures from across the room, was an exercise in making the familiar alien, and in doing so, attempting to find something in Little Merritt's person that I had failed previously to see. I, who was so close to the boy, my dear clinging, crying monkey, Dr. Karn seemed to believe that if I could only see Little Merritt as he had been then, rather than delight in the memories of his boyish masculinity, I might have seen anger or petulance or some slight shadow of what was coming and of what has now come to pass. But I saw nothing. And if I am being truthful, I see nothing much now. Which isn't to say that I do not have my regrets as a mother. Perhaps there was something bothersome in Little Merritt's perpetually furrowed brow. It'd been there since birth, though we'd once thought it worthy of our admiration and praise. What a skeptical little man he is, we'd exclaimed. What a shrewd little lawyer he'll make. We thought his harmless incredulity and infantile affect something that might erode with age. Little Merritt drew stick figures whose eyes, averted, were shot through with webby arteries. We'd laughed heartily when his own stick figure was 10 times larger than the one he drew representing his own father, my dear Roland. We thought it a fanciful affectation. Of course little Merritt wasn't tall enough to dwarf the estate. Of course he wasn't sharp-toothed and black-winged. Of course it was coincident that he'd drawn his first au pair Claudine in black and brick red, standing dangerously close to the rear court's reflecting pool, and that but a year later, our sweet Claudine, daft, lovely Claudine, would be found floating in that very pool, the water pink from her wounds, her flesh cold and slick as a pearl. So imaginative, we cried over our sherry on the day that little Merritt had drawn that picture. So brash, so self-assured. Perhaps a prosecutor he'll be, or a fine politician. 
Roland had framed that image and then hung it above the bidet in Little Merritt's bath. <laughs> Later, after Claudine's cadavre had been shipped back to Reunion, the aisle from whence she'd come, Roland had ordered that the picture be hung in the guest suite. It was an oddity, I told Dr. Karn, that even after the death of our Claudine, Roland might have the picture displayed still, and this time in a more prominent location. It was his way of honoring her, I thought. Dr. Karn had offered his own interpretation. Perhaps, the good doctor had said, it was done in remorse or in remembrance, or, Dr. Karn continued, little Merritt's picture might serve as a warning to our guests. I had lost my composure then, and in my fury, I'd frightened the doctor. There are so many perhapses and becauses, I'd scream, so many maybes and what ifs. Perhaps in loving little Merritt as well as we did, we overlooked some slight but critical ingredient, and in doing so, we left him as a cake baked with too little sugar. All might look and smell and feel well under the pressure of a fingertip. Perhaps all was well after all. I certainly thought so then. In every picture, I am smiling and handing little Merritt to Claudine and washing my hands and observing as the dear young girl tends to little Merritt's grubby fingers and scraped knees. Yet, in the photographs, I seem always to be wagging a finger at Claudine rather than at little Merritt for whatever small indiscretion might have occurred. A broken glass, a lost key, a tiny scratch across little Merritt's chubby calf. These were snapshots, pictures of us a record of our burgeoning brood, and in them little Merritt is wagging his fingers too. It has taken me years to realize this, but in every frame, little Merritt's eyes are trained on the lens of the camera. There is not but one image in which he seems to see our dear Claudine. In the mouths of babes, says Dr. Karn, even bile smells sweet, which is Dr. Karn's way of telling me that I should have known that I should have seen all of this coming. And perhaps he is right. When, as a little one, little Merritt had asked for his yogurt, he mispronounced it. Most children do. But where most toddlers say yogo or gogurt or simply gurt, and the developmentally delayed and the imbecilic simply reached and said want. When little Merritt, Merritt reached for his cheese-thick yogurt, sweetened only with honey and a dollop of raspberry coulis, and presented in a porcelain bowl, he pronounced it clearly enough, though the word he spoke was not yogurt. Clear as crystal, as Dr. Karn would say, little Merritt would tell Claudine, I want it, his fat hands grasping for her own. I want blood. Thanks. Julia Kolchinsky Daspot holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Oregon, 
and is working on a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania's Comparative Literature and Literary Theory program, where her research focuses on contemporary American poetry related to the Holocaust. Her poems have appeared in Gulf Coast, Triquarterly, Missouri Review, and Narrative Magazine, among others. She is the author of The Bear Who Ate the Stars, for sale at the Eckelberg booth, number 389, just putting that out there. <laughs> Winner of Split Lip Magazine's 2014 Uppercut Chapbook Award. Julia is also editor-in-chief of Construction Magazine. Let's bring her up. poems for you and a lot of them are quite new so they might be a little political and related to today all right sorry about that for war and water everyone is having boys my mother says that means war is coming the way it came in the old country boys rising out of the ice and cold potato fields boys laying bricks and digging wells and trenches and bodies Boys out of other boys, like my boy, born the year before. Cops killed even more black boys, and more boys killed other boys for loving boys, and more swastikas showed up on walls, and more walls went up, invisible, where once ran rivers. But a river is not a boy. It can either run dry or bleed, and everybody will blame someone darker, or maybe an animal, that gorilla who dragged away the little boy, or the gator who stole the other. But in the water, they seem so strong, resilient even, these boys born months apart, these boys like my boy, who beat the water and kick and suck it down, these boys who grow not knowing they were born for war, and that it's everywhere, and there is no outrunning water. So I'll read a poem from the chapbook, because I feel like that's what you have to do. I'm pretty funny. My poems are depressing, but I'm kind of funny. So you should go hang out. That's why I'm funny, because I write about depressing things. Dark Chocolate Play. It's not as though I think it unordinary for foreign blood to pour in Russian teacups, give it a taste more sweet than brugelach baked in kosher ovens. It's not as though I think it unordinary to wake with unintelligible tongues locked in one mouth, still tangled and chewing the same bite of history they didn't help create. And I don't think it unordinary for a mother to see obligation in the soup she feeds her daughter, mixing lard into the matzo balls to weigh her child's feet to the home kitchen. Nothing unique about this mother's threats of suicide over a martini glass, or the change of color in her robe, the flowers turning dark when I dye her hair each month's last Sundays. The white's a reddish brown, and it's not uncommon for her hair brown, for his hair, sorry, brown in color, blonde by blood, to part down the middle. Although my mother only noticed it last weekend, when shivering outside didn't remind her how his mind is potholed, 
just gave her an extra minute to notice his haircut. But it is strange, surprising even, to the child and lover on the inside of my smile, that the Jew and German both prefer a cold beer inside a Soviet winter and hold kosher, dark chocolate gelt in their palms until they can color my childhood wallpaper with a trail of guilty handprints. Um, and I'll just finish with the most recent poem called A Letter to My Son, November 8th, 2016, the day my son turned one. It's a great birthday for me to remember years and years from now. <laughs> Letter to my son, remember here you are a white man, pearl, bone, tooth, pillowcase, linens, cotton, mouth, mourning, but only here. No, across the water you are dark, soil, branch, riverbed, blackbird, blood, bruise, mouth, mourning. You are otherness among others and among yours. Remember, they won't see it here at first. They'll call you by your given name. They'll hold your hand and ask to hear your history. They'll listen as generations slip from your tongue, soiled bones and teeth and linens and mouths. A shower of stars made brighter by galaxies gone dark. They'll trust you when you say your pockets are empty, but I'll have taught you to always carry stones because you never know when you will walk among the dead, because you know they're everywhere. But remember, here you are a white man, the dead under your skin, your feet inside your mouth. They crack white bones, milk teeth, raw gum line, still sealing soft spot. They whisper, you were never one of us, and hold you to their chest to sink you into ground. But remember, little son, Solnishka, you are more than stone or pearl or star or mineral, more than body or metaphor can make you or color, name you or land and water divide you, more than ma or man or mine. You will know our stones in your bones, branch, black sea, bruised and blooming when the neighborhood boys threw stones at your mother and words at her mother and then hands at hers, when they threw fists at your grandfather and bullets at his and finally shoved your great-great-grandfather so far beneath the earth no stone or throw could reach there, you will know that none of us were white men then. Remember, when half of your ancestors died, the other half did the killing. Remember, murderer and murdered are just one death apart, and your skin is translucent, kin on its underside, kin just one sibilance away. Remember how much this matters everywhere, how skin hurts, how no love is deep enough to forget this, and no skin thick enough to endure. Thank you so much. Rajiv Mohavir, author of The Taxidermist Cut from Four Way Books.
um, is by Kunduman Vona and the Homeschool Fellow. His second collection of poetry, The Cowherd's Son, won the Kunduman Prize in 2015 and is forthcoming from Tupelo Press. He's going to read some nonfiction, I hope, a little bit for us tonight. Uh, Rajiv Moyer. Thank you, everybody. Oh my goodness, how wonderful has this reading been? Like, and what a great place. Jeez. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Is, it, is it singing back a little bit? No? Okay. okay. So, uh, my second book is forthcoming, but there are advanced copies. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm really excited about it. And I met it for the first time today. So, um, like the cover is like the fattiest demon that I could find. And it's like, Totally perfect for this poem. So, I'm, if you will indulge me, I will read one poem before I read some Um This this poem is called "Ode to Richmond Hill." Richmond Hill is like the center of Indo-Caribbean um, uh, diaspora in uh, New York City. Is anyone from New York? No. Uh, has anyone been to New York? Yeah. So I'm I'm hardcore rep in Queens tonight. Um, so "Ode to Richmond Hill." Then the drunk teen scatters a cascade of copper on cement. The old uncle yells, eyes silver with disbelief. Pick up your pipe, son of man. No worry, on this slight day, youths them speak no Hindi to know. Paisa means money. A taxi speeds by, blaring a chutney remix of Kaisebani, and you remember your Aji dropping her rum at auntie's party to jump up and your mother's awkward Hindi. You bit your fingers with each roti she rolled, each mantra she taught you. Floods your throat in front of this puja shop on 127th and Liberty, strung with plastic marigolds, a replica strung of polypropylene, like you are now. And not like Lang time, when Par Aja came from India. You are a forgery that will one day burn, not on a pyre, but in an incinerator, not on a riverbank, but in a crematorium. Your prayers in Hindi, accented in English alveolars, neither devas nor prophets recognize as supplication. But on Liberty Avenue, in the, wa in the waft of a spliff drag and sandalwood, a coolie uncle in a korta mouths marley as you walk by, you start to sing praise to queens, where you are Chandra's son, or so-and-so body kipikni where you wipe oil from doubles on your jeans and cuss up the car that backs into stacked crates of strawberries to where you return after three years and Richmond Hill opens its coolie arms, pulls you close, and in your ears whispers, this time in a long time. So um, I'm reading this, uh, this uh, story, it's a kind of an excerpt from my memoir, um, and it's called uh, E-Train to Roosevelt, Making All Local Stops in Queens, and so it's kind of like a, a story that happens along the route of the E-Train, um, which goes from uh, uh, Manhattan to Jackson Heights, where I live. Um, and like, uh, as you know, like I said, uh, Indo I'm Indo-Caribbean. Uh, my parents uh, come from the West Indian country of Guyana, which is actually in South America, but uh, originally came from India in the late 1800s. Um, and so, 14th Street, transferred here for the ACL. Tonight, Union Square is a whiskey wheeze. A curtain of secondhand smoke and steam rises from the manhole. I look onto the street, clutching my Johnny Black, 
on the rocks and grit my key. The door slides open. The bald Punjabi man just next to me makes eye contact and smiles. Tonight is the night of the monthly Shole party, the monthly queer South Asian party, but instead of the Prince Street location, it's at Webster Hall. I've never been to Webster Hall before. Its three-floored three circus packed with young college students is a nightmare that I can do without. But I love to dance, and I feel safe in mostly, in mostly queer brown spaces. But do you drink, I ask? Uh, bu excuse me, buy you a drink, I ask? Is it payday, he sneers? Sure, my cheap clothes portray the fact that I am not as he is, a designer. The bartender brings the whiskey ginger. As I reach for it, Navpreet sees the glint of my gold bangle. He assumes it's a kara, the bangle that seeks swear. You Punjabi, he asks. I'm often mistaken for Punjabi and taken by Punjabis. Tonight's no different. No, I'm Guyanese. Oh, he's disappointed. A dark. I smile at Navpreet and down the cold fire that is my drink. Ice cubes near slicing my throat. DJ Bobby starts spinning Bidi, just out from the movie Omkra, starring Saif Ali Khan. I fumble to the dance floor and I start to dance. I don't give one fuck who's here. If I am by myself, by myself, or if Navpreet thinks I'm an idiot, dancing chutney and not Kangra. A man settles up next to me and we begin to dance together. He has long hair, is tall and broad-shouldered. Clearly, I think, this man is Punjabi. Are there only Punjabis in this city? I wonder. I finger his hair. To see Jatko, I ask in my broken Punjabi, this time playing along with my constant foe, my mistaken identity. What, he asks? The music bumps. I can feel it in my temples, throbbing, my blood thinned by alcohol. I repeat, no, I'm not Indian. I'm Guyanese. I'm Rajiv. Hi, Rajiv. I'm Ali, he says, and places my hand on his crotch. He goes outside to smoke a Newport. I fall down a flight of stairs after I get another drink. Somewhere that night, he gashes his leg. Our meeting starts with pain. Let's take the E-train to my place. It's going local, though, I say. 34th Penn Station, 40, 34th Street Penn Station, transfer here for the AC. Karma is a bitch, Ali said of his drag persona, Lorde Sutra. This name was reminiscent of the Lotus Sutra, a long thread of mantra that leads to nirvana. Or actually, it leads to a better rebirth if you say it right and enough, I suppose. Ali's thread dealt exclusively with his eyebrows. We moved in together by the summertime. My Jackson Heights flat was closer to his work than his five-bedroom, three-story house in Belmont, Long Island. Ali overspent even in his sleep. His house was an excessive mess of $700,000, cheap Playboy memorabilia and tchotchkes. He had a room in his house devoted to quote-unquote Asia, an orientalist fantasy of paper fans, Ming-style vases, and dull katanas. Ali lived in this palace of excess with his brother and his brother's then-girlfriend. We decided to live in my place until the lease was up. Then we would find our own place together. I paid for all of the bills, while he continued to pay the mortgage on his house, while his brother and his brother's girlfriend paid almost nothing. Why are they not paying anything, I asked once, biting my tongue. Rafi is young. I wish I had the opportunity, um, 
I wish I had the opportunity that I am affording him now. Um, excuse me, affording him now when I was his age. No. Instead, you married a woman and, and bought a house seven times what you make in a year at best. What about this life we have together? When we move in together, it'll be a different story, Ali promises. I'm skipping this section. Lexington Ave, 53rd Street, transfer here to the 4-6, making all local stops. Thanksgiving, Ali's mother's house. His mother made it clear that she hated me. I was in disbelief that Ali said she wanted me to come over to her house for this holiday. Ali's aunts and uncles and cousins crowded his childhood home. His uncles and father snuck off somewhere out of sight to snort coke. I didn't want to answer anyone's questions about who I was and what my relationship to this family was since Ali, had, Ali was not out to too many of his extended family members. I busied myself washing dishes while his mother entertained. But who is this Saida washing all the time? I hope he's getting paid, one of Ali's aunts said. Ali, Ali laughed long and returned to his room, making straight-acting comments to his cousins like, remember Alicia from Adams? She was hot. The water was so hot, it scalded my skin. I peeled blistered off my, blisters off my hand, hands for the next week. Something was wrong with the water heater. The steam rose from the stainless steel basin. I don't know who he is, Sayyid began. He must be one of the boy's friends. I looked at Ali, who laughed long, pretending that he didn't just swallow my cum an hour before we got there. Um, and the, the last part that I'll read is, Court Square, 23rd Street. And this is not the end of the story. If you want to find out what happens in the end, violation. <laughs> the steady pulse of the water from the shower head matched my step as I crossed the oak floorboards to get the guitar. Ali was in the shower. It had been a couple of weeks. I pulled out my acoustic Ibanez and sat on my bed, feet touching the cool floor. The bathroom door slowly creaked open. Drying his left ear with a faded blue towel, Ali stared at himself in the mirror. I sang an old Bhojpuri tune written by Sundar Popo and sung by Babla and Kanchan, a song every coolie from Crowder Creek to Kingston knows. Chadar bi chao balma, chadariya chadar bi chao balma, nindalage kya na soi rehna. The guitar strings stung my fingertips. My words, ocean and back down. I played the song to someone who could understand the color of this memory. Stained boards of the SS Jura in 1890, bound for New Amsterdam from, Kolkata, from the Kolkata port just after the monsoon rains. My body was a ship, swaying on the Kalapani that separated families from one another. He and I shared this history. What do the words mean, Ali shouted from the bathroom, where he beat his face. A woman is asking her lover to lay a lay a sheet down on the grass so that when they're tired they can lie together, I say. Like they, that they could find rest in each other. The searching was done. That kind of wholeness was possible. Someone could understand this song. Thank you. Join the conversation with Citizen Lit. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at Citizen Litcast. Like what you hear on the episode? Subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher and iTunes. 
have a scene to report on, want a recorded audio review, email us at citizenlitcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Ray Bryant, James Allen Hall, Busboys and Poets, Cherry Tree, and the Dr. T.J. Eckelberg Review. Additional music for today's episode was brought to you by Kay Sparks and Roz Cole. Our theme music comes from the late, great Bedford. More information on the program is available at citizenlitcast.com. Aubrey Cox is our executive producer. Jensen Williams is our graphic designer. I'm your host, Jim Warner, and you've been listening to Citizen Lit. 